Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, two and three. So close to being a 500 team after what was a very disappointing beginning to the season. But tonight's not a night for sadness. Tonight's a night for joy in a shorthanded affair without Jared Allen, without Darius Garland, without Ty Jerome, Donovan Mitchell's first half, Evan Mobley's third quarter, Donovan Mitchell's late fourth quarter, and just some all-around big-time plays from the boys in stopping those grifty charge merchants, the New York Knicks. Let's bust out one of the old songs. Now, details are 50% accurate at best, but the spirit of the song conveys a message which is important on this podcast, a mantra of the Fear of the Fro podcast, which is fuck the Knicks. The Knicks lose once again. A Fear the Fro production. Cleveland came in through the back door and nabbed a spider. Featuring CP the franchise and Stephen A. Smith. Yeah, this is in Brooklyn. They're further down the ladder. Right next to Atlanta, where winning barely matters. This is what I'm going to put out there on the floor. Mediocre. Donovan's a Cavalier. He only comes to visit here. Born way up in Ellsford, practically Connecticut. Went to school in New Hampshire, already got ahead of it. Stayed away in high school, college, again in the league. Has the Knicks faithful singing, Oh, woe is me. Cruising next to Garland, star guard Axis, torching the untouchable grimes out of Texas. Fro, he came from Brooklyn. Got him for a trash pick. Houston didn't want him so that they could get their ass kicked. I want a star. First, you lost Kyrie. I want a star. Followed up by KD. I want a star. Then you lost Donovan. But hey, Plan D. Jalen Brunson. In New York, none of your first options will come through. There's nothing you can do when you play in New York. Knicks catch another L. If you publicly say what we all knew, James Dolan might ban you. Feel sorry for New York, New York, New York. Facial recognition complete. Bob Schmidt. Band. Oh, what a night. What a night in, well, I was about to say Cleveland, but New York, Madison Square Garden. I certainly had zero expectations of a Cavaliers victory coming off, well, a very disappointing second half, third quarter especially, beginning of the third quarter especially, in last night's affair in Cleveland, and then a quick turnaround, a flight to Madison Square Garden, a place where the Cavaliers have struggled mightily. But... The Knicks' win streak of four games was snapped as the Cleveland Cavaliers won, pulling away in the fourth quarter. It got tight. Things were looking good after a beautiful little slip pass in the lane from Karis LeVert to catch Tristan Thompson with a layup, giving us a nine-point lead with about seven and a half minutes left. And I thought, okay, this is good. We're weathering the storm. While our shooting had gone stone cold, the Knicks' shooting remained stone cold. I don't know if I have seen a worse shooting performance, and this was a rock fight in the playoffs between our two squads. But with 30 attempts to their name, the Knicks hit just five three-pointers. Less than 17% from outside the arc, less than 35% from the field. Now, I may make many songs over the course of this podcast that eventually get proven wrong. These Knicks ones, especially from the past season, make me look like a real Homer asshole. But... If I made a song whose entire theme was not about the Cavaliers winning or the Knicks winning, but was entirely about Julius Randle playing like shit every time he faces Cleveland, I feel like that would stand the test of time. Since the playoffs began last season, Julius Randle is shooting 32% from the floor against us and just 22% from three. 
in just the last four games against the Cavaliers. Three of which, by the way, the Knicks have won. That man is two for 18 from outside the arc and a horrid 15 of 48 from the field. Now they say winning covers up a lot of flaws, which is absolutely true because for all the strays that Evan Mobley took for a quiet offensive series or Jared Allen took for his disappearing act on the glass or Donovan Mitchell took for not being able to vastly outplay Jalen Brunson in that 4-1 series loss to the Knicks. A greatly overlooked storyline is that since the playoffs began last year, Julius Randle has been an absolute non-factor against these Cavaliers. Outside of aggression and questionable moving screens that go uncalled in the fourth quarter against Isaac Okoro, what has this man done? And while I won't lie that that makes me somewhat happy, it also worries me to some extent because the Knicks have won a large amount of these games. And there is a future scenario where Julius Randle is the contractual centerpiece of some sort of all-in superstar trade, perhaps a Joel Embiid, who has cooked us on a regular basis. If you look at this Knicks roster and you take out a man who has unquestionably been a negative, that lends to the possibility of a very scary future. Now to his co-star, Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson was one of the three impactful scores for the New York Knicks who did not hit a three-point shot. I, of course, alluded to Randall, but he and Emmanuel quickly also we're 0 for 5 collectively between the two of them. So with the Knicks spraying out diarrhea and with Donovan Mitchell not missing a three-point attempt till midway through the second quarter, you would think that we had a big lead. But no, at halftime, we actually trailed by one point thanks to a huge end-of-the-half three-pointer by Karis LeVert after a 7-0 run by the Knicks to head into the half. Exactly the type of thing you didn't want to see. And Jalen Brunson had a big hand in that. He led the Knicks in first half, scoring with 14 of his 20 points coming in the first half, but perhaps more impactful was the fact that he had Isaac Okoro in hell. But it wasn't the points. It was the grift, where that charge merchant was everywhere, flopping around, laying on the floor. If Jalen Brunson was in Tiananmen Square in 1989, he would have fouled out every single one of those Chinese tanks with his a questionable approach to offensive basketball and defensive basketball. Let's be fair here. There are few guys in the league who can lean into people and draw fouls more, but get the benefit of the doubt. If there was such a thing as net rating of grift, Jalen Brunson is certainly not the most talented offensive grifter in the game. Now, he's good at it, but he does it in a way where he kind of bowling balls his way into calls. He leans into guys, but it's a stout grift. It's not the rip-through, flail-your-arms-along cell grift that you get from guys like Trey Young and Joel Embiid. So I, to some extent, I respect and admire Jalen Brunson's offensive grift. But his defensive grift is disgusting. Cover your nuts and get in the way of guys running full-speed grift. It's more likely to result in injuries. It's not really what I would call a basketball play. Now, I fully acknowledge Anderson Verjao did the same type of shit. Kevin Love, same type of shit, but doesn't mean I have to like it when I'm on the other end of it. So to my point, Trey Young isn't out there drawing a bunch of charges. If there was such a thing as net rating of grift, Jalen Brunson would have to be amongst the league leaders. But please don't receive this as me just willy-nilly slandering Jalen Brunson. But you have eyes. And even if you could concede that, yes, 
Those are charges, in fact, that the NBA calls. It doesn't mean we can't acknowledge that the man is a master of manipulation. So, to put a period on this sentence, my point is, this was not a game that Isaac Okoro was particularly impactful for because he had to expend all of his energy fighting Jalen Brunson while trying to still stay in the game. If you saw his two points and six personal fouls, you would say the Okoro hype train has derailed. But I say, choo-choo, fuck you. I admire him for his tenacity and, more importantly, for his ability to go from four personal fouls in the first half to managing to not commit another until deep into the fourth quarter. If there's a silver lining to all of these injuries, it's that guys like Struess and Isaac Okoro are being thrown right into the fire in terms of these crucible moments for guys like Karis LeVert and Okoro and Struess will prove beneficial when we're at full strength. Because one of the frustrations of watching Cavaliers basketball over the years is that we get tons from our starting lineup and next to nothing from our bench. But look at the end of the game tonight. Karis LeVert drives to the rim on Mitchell Robinson, goes up, gets stuffed. Now, it was a block for Mitchell Robinson, but there was definitely a lot of contact. He could have stopped. He could have sold. He could have bitched and moaned at the refs. Instead, he comes back down the next possession, knocks down a three in Mitchell Robinson's face. He played through it. 19 points today made him our second leading scorer. So while there were stretches of effectiveness and ineffectiveness, at the end of the day, he knocked down three triples and he was the leading scorer in the fourth quarter, despite Donovan Mitchell's spurt at the end there. Even Craig Porter Jr. After the first quarter, our second leading scorer was Craig Porter Jr. And he didn't even log into the game until late, late in the first quarter. It can only be beneficial to us that these guys who will not be heavily relied on are being forced to be heavily relied on early in the season. Evan Mobley, to bounce back from a very quiet first half in which he made just one field goal attempt to finish the game with a stat stuffing, 14-8-5, and clawed his way up to 50% from the floor. He desperately needed that. There has been so much discourse about the frustration of trying to force the hand of Evans' offensive development, when at times he just doesn't look ready for it. But that second half was the type of calming performance you want to see. And most importantly, it came in a win against a team we desperately want to beat while shorthanded. Some great assists. And he was the story of the third quarter. I mean, he nine of his 14 points came in that third quarter. That's all you could really hope for from Evan after what was just a bad first Knicks game. Isaiah Hartenstein, a much quieter night. And after what was a disheartening showing, and I say that with no pun intended, I know I'm talking about Hartenstein, but definitely very impactful. And a nod to George Nyang. I had my doubts about him entering the starting lineup. I wanted Dean out there for defensive purposes and because he's a little more rugged. But I do think the Cavaliers are making an effort to find how they can get Nyang to contribute, to put him alongside guys who he's going to be logging lots of minutes around for him to lead the team in rebounding tonight. Good effort from George Niang, despite a very quiet offensive performance. Now let's talk about Donnie, okay? Because I know we touched on it, but Donovan Mitchell, this was two games in one. You could tell the amount of energy he had to expend early. There has been some interesting stuff out there in terms of, I saw a tweet from Spencer Davies where he was talking to him in the locker room, and, and he mentioned you could sense the frustration in Donovan's voice. And certainly, after last game, if he had put forth these superhuman spurts two games in a row, 
only to watch the rest of the team kind of wither around him, the questions would be brutal, especially in New York, where the media would certainly be on him about what are your future plans and all that. But we can put that to bed for the day, at least, because tonight's win was the first one Mitchell has gotten at Madison Square Garden as a Cavalier, and he had questions aimed at him in the postgame. I think this one was from Fedor about how it felt to kind of break that, uh, not, not curse, curse wouldn't be the right word, but to secure his first victory. I've heard about it for so long. It's kind of like, all right, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, like I said, there's bigger things on our agenda. And, like, I think the thing, thing for me is how we won, you know what I mean? But, like I said, like, Karis is right. You know, it's definitely something that, you know, is quote unquote been dangled over your head, if, if, you, if you will. But, you know, for us to do it how we did it as a group, I think that's that we'll take that and, you know, continue to build upon it. You know, we could definitely be better as well. I will say, though, on the other side of this thing, there is this frustrating pattern, it feels like, for our star guards where they go on these incredible hot streaks. Like that 13 points in a row to start the game, they set it on the broadcast. It was a record. That's the most points scored by a Cavalier player to start a game. In all of his years here, LeBron never did what Donovan Mitchell did. But then, of course, there was that stretch where he missed everything in the third quarter and missed seven consecutive three-point attempts. So I was glad to come away with the win, but I certainly wish we could kind of pace the contributions a little more evenly because it did look like Donnie's legs were just gone in the second half. It's too much to ask of a guy to float your entire offense for quarters at a time. But... He came up big when you needed him to, and those five points in a row at the end of the fourth quarter were huge. So just a couple other things I want to touch on. I did not spend much time on Craig Porter Jr., but again, productive minutes. If there was a bright point in game one against the Knicks, I thought it was Craig Porter Jr.'s first shift. I thought he looked very solid, and even Bates had moments, who disappointingly did not see the floor today, but the win was more important. Craig Porter Jr., his minutes have been a revelation of sorts. I'm slightly less confident of Jerome's ability to hold him off, especially if there's an extended absence, because I think confidence will grow as Porter logs more minutes. Now, I still believe in Ty Jerome, but reports were that he was in a walking boot. Injuries can completely fuck you when you're in a precarious position in the rotation. So I hope Ty gets back soon if he wants the type of opportunity that he probably came here expecting. And then Tristan Thompson, he has taken Damian Jones's role. I think it's pretty apparent. He was the first Cavalier to score tonight, not named Donovan Mitchell. And that was, there was less than three minutes left in the first quarter. So not a huge stat line from him, but certainly has more left in the tank than I think I would have given him credit for. So look, next up, we have the Indiana Pacers and a chance to kind of right a wrong. And hopefully with a couple days off here until Friday, we can get some more guys healthy. But regardless, if you told me I could have a win on Friday and back-to-back losses against the Knicks or this win against the Knicks and a loss on Friday, I would take this option. So I'm hoping that this carries some momentum forward. But now the Cavaliers undefeated on the road, so perhaps they can keep that streak going and become 3-0 and with a victory over the Pacers a team that has one of the most unique in-season tournament courts out there. Very Boise State-esque. Now, I do want to touch on some other NBA news here because a massive trade happened this week by a guy who was tearing apart one of our conference rivals, the Philadelphia 76ers, who now, maybe they don't have the top-end talent they had, but they added a lot of rotation pieces. It probably only stands to help them. 
just to end that chaos. A trade of James Harden. So I thought, who better to talk about this with than a man who works for the Los Angeles Clippers? Here's an interview I taped before tonight's game against the Knicks. I'm going to throw you right into it. Uh, You should know that when I taped this, I absolutely butchered the lead-up with technical issues. So that is how we begin the conversation. Adam Osland, Clippers pre- and post-game host. I appreciate being on a podcast where I can say, fuck, that was a long time of troubleshooting, Bob, but good to be on with you now. Yeah, I mean, I blame you entirely. I'm an audio professional, and people on this podcast have never heard me fuck up because even when I do, I edit it out. So you'll just have to take my word for it that I'm not to blame. It is definitely Adam, who uh, we're recording this on video, even though this is an audio-only podcast. He looks, uh, he looks hungover. Look, I haven't drank in almost two years, okay? If I'm hungover, it's just because I ordered Taco Bell at midnight last <laughs> night after the Clippers' big comeback Fourth victory. dinner. The bell told for me I couldn't, I couldn't resist Taco Bell late last night. And okay. it was disgusting and probably 2,000 calories that I slept on. Well, speaking of uh, diarrhea reaction, what is the general consensus in the Clipper community? And when I say Clipper community, just tell me how you feel. Where do you come down on this whole trade? I think it was necessary for them to get more high-end talent in the regular season, most of all. James Harden is a huge floor raiser in the regular season. He has proven that time and time again. And he's in a different role now, not the first option, third option on this Clippers team, especially with the way Paul George has started off this season on his bully shit, as he said he would be. Uh, But James Harden is somebody that, look, I say it all the time, the only team in the modern era that won a championship and wasn't a top three seed in their conference was the 95 Houston Rockets, who had just won the season before. So for all those people who love to say the regular season doesn't matter, it sure seems to because if you aren't a top three seed, you aren't winning the ring. That's what history has told us. And the Clippers, to get back in that upper echelon of teams in the Western Conference, I felt like it. I talked about it all summer long that James Harden would be necessary just for them to navigate what is the toughest schedule in the NBA by far because they have third billing at Crypto.com Arena. They have 25 instances of three games in four nights. So basically 75 of their 82 games are coming within those parameters. So it's a brutal schedule and their last year at crypto before the Intuit Dome, the only way they were going to be able to get through it is stacking talent and having guys that can turn back the clock like we saw Russ against Memphis last season in a big game where Kawhi and Paul George were out and he took over and led them to victory. There's going to be nights where James Harden is going to have to carry them. You know with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, they're going to miss ball games. I don't think either of them have played over 70 games so far in a Clippers uniform. And last season, they were both around 55. So it's a little bit of that insurance. Should one of them or both of them be out with all these back-to-backs the Clippers have, if there's unfortunately an injury that arises, you just have to have more high-end talent in this league to get by, especially when you look at some of the other teams in the West that got better. The Phoenix Suns got Bradley Beal. I know they're struggling right now. They have their own injury concerns, but Golden State Warriors look good with CP3. The Nuggets look like they have even better chemistry than last season without Bruce Brown. And the Lakers brought in Torian Prince, who's been good so far, and Christian Wood, actually, who's been a huge plus for them. So if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And I think the Clippers saw that to extend their window with the 2-1-3 connection with Kawhi and Paul George, they had to make this move. All these guys in the top four have the ability, I guess, to exit next summer. But you expect, as seems to be the 
kind of prevalent opinion that making this trade, giving up picks and assets to do it, means that they're going to commit to three or all four of these guys on a long-term basis? I mean, if things went horribly wrong, like me in the bathroom after this Taco Bell later today, (laughs) then that could change things, obviously. But if, let's say, they don't win the championship, but they make it to the Western Conference Finals, they lose in six games or seven games to the Denver Nuggets, that's something where I think you try to run it back with guys that are from Southern California, four of them who all played in SoCal. I've been calling them West Side Connection. Other people are naming them California Love. To win the first championship with the Clippers with a bunch of guys from SoCal would be special. You're going into a new building, and while some say the building alone is enough of an attraction, I don't know if I agree with that. After a couple of months, that stuff starts to fade. If you're getting run off the court every night and everybody's just there to see the opposition, that's not what Steve Ballmer is looking for. And he has always said that he's not looking to ever have a hard rebuild or reset with this Clippers team. He wants to be competitive every season. And we know Kawhi and Paul George, they're extension eligible. So is Coach Lou. James Harden is not. He will be a free agent, but they will have his bird rights also to go over the cap to retain him. So if things go well, and that doesn't have to necessarily mean a championship victory, but just maybe they take it all the way to the finals and lose there further than any Clippers team ever has. Well, I I think these guys, uh, they have a group now that they would trust to bring back maybe three more years you have with Kawhi and Paul George to really give yourself a shot. I mean, that's all you can ask for. This was, by the way, a Clippers team that never had players of this caliber coming here, and all of a sudden guys want to be with this franchise. It's become a destination franchise. I think that alone has been a little bit overlooked in all of this, just the turnaround in Steve Ballmer's 10 years now with the team. Are you worried at all about how this impacts some of the guys that that were in a more elevated role like a, like a Bones Highland? I would assume this is probably a negative development for him. Yeah, if anyone was affected by bringing in James Harden, and look, I'm high on Bones Highland. Kawhi Leonard has, they've been joined at the hip throughout training camp. It's been this weird mentorship going on because I think Kawhi identified him as having star potential. Uh, The Denver Nuggets saw some of that. It just wasn't going to work, and their GM said, well, you can't have two non-defenders on the floor. Well, I'll say this about Bones. Even going back to when the Clippers brought him in last season, in that playoff series against the Phoenix Suns, his defensive effort has been there. That's really all you can ask. He's slight of frame. There's going to be mismatches. He fouls too much sometimes, but he competes and has been competing even more so on that end. And the offense, where last year he shot, I think, 33% from three feet to 16 feet out. He couldn't finish at the rim. That's completely flipped around. I think he's over 70% at the rim now. We know the catch-and-shoot three-pointers are there, the pull-up three-pointers. He is elite in that area, but he's also a very good playmaker. So I was starting to think, you know, do they need an upgrade if Bones makes this big leap this season, which is what Kawhi saw in him. He spoke about it last night. I, I think there's going to be that aspect to it where it stunts his growth maybe slightly, but it also depends on the health of this team. I think Bones is still going to get his. I think they're still going to find him opportunities out there because they see how valuable he can be. And I believe he's already at a place where he can swing a playoff game. Last season, with no Kawhi, with no Paul George in Game 3 against Phoenix, Clippers had no business being in that game. Bones had 20. 
he has this it factor to him. He's just so fearless out there. He's so aggressive. So I think they have to find minutes for him. It helps when you're blowing teams out. That's what championship teams do. You take care of business and you get your younger guys and guys on the bench a little bit of run. That's one way just to keep him involved. Where do you see the Clippers realistically at the end of the year in terms of the West hierarchy? I think they have to be a top three seed. They know that. And I believe they have an opportunity to now. If you look at the Western Conference standings last season, the Nuggets were the number one seed just winning 53 games. And before the Clippers brought in James Harden, most people had them as a second-tier title contender where everything would have to go right, which obviously has not happened with Kawhi and Paul George so far. But they were behind basically the Denver Nuggets, the Phoenix Suns, the Los Angeles Lakers. Most people had the Golden State Warriors in front of them as well. With James, I think it vaults them right back into that conversation of being one of the top teams, if not the top team in the West, and the team to beat. Because there's already books out there that say, sports books that say, they're the favorites. Weren't they the Vegas favorites last year, though, before the season? Am I crazy? It didn't go well, Bob. Okay. Well, hey, (laughs) our playoff run didn't go well either. So, you know, I'm not throwing stones out here. But there is one, one more. This is... I did this whole precursor of, you know, you delivering expert analysis in a very professional manner to lead up to what is possibly the most inappropriate James Harden trade reaction that I heard. And I'm not sure that you heard it out there in the uh, Twitter sphere, but our coworker, Chris Broussard, on First Things First, uh, had had commentary. Um, and I'm not sure if you can hear this down the line. I'm just going to fire it off. Nick, I what James, I is the I, man I, retarded? The, I mean, the, is, the, I mean, shouldn't use that word, but de- sure. Developmentally yeah. disabled? Sure. Oof. So in talking about um, James's motivations, his mindset, etc., Chris Broussard ripped off a hard R. Now, I'm not going to ask you to confirm that that's bad, but the reason I play that audio is to set up the following audio, because the follow-up, the apology, was possibly worse than the initial offense. Let me let me apologize for using that word. Oh. I, I have a, a my first cousin. I we just put him to. He died a few months ago, a month or two ago. He was developmentally disabled. What? I, I have a, a my first cousin. I we just put him to. Put him to what, Broussard? What were you going to say there? Were you going to say sleep? Because it sounded like you were going to say sleep. This is just an informal poll. What do you find more offensive? The hard R itself or the implication that his cousin with developmental disabilities had to be put to sleep? Chris Broussard had a rough, rough couple minutes there. Really just dug the hole a little bit deeper for himself. Uh, It's all bad. It's all bad. Nick Wright, I'm glad he went after him for it. I just couldn't believe he said that on uh, live television. Chris Broussard, I, I normally like I, I like the guy. I, I like the show he does. Oh, me Bob too. Parker, me too. Of course. It happens, I guess. Yeah, I like Brew too. Uh, I think people do regrettable things. I just found his attempt to make it better so much worse. Hilariously clumsy. If I mean, if you can find humor in somebody just digging a hole even deeper. That was kind of like playing Minesweeper and on Expert, and you just kind of fell into another landmine there Ugh, yeah. as you were trying to dodge one. I Yeah, didn't make a lot of sense. So maybe that takes attention uh, away from any of the other concerns about James Harden and his uh, general exit strategies for previous teams. And it gives uh, people a chance to focus their ire outside 
towards uh, Chris Broussard, which will allow him to just slide in there, get ripped as fuck, put forth a great regular season, and then have another sub-40% playoff performance. How dare you, Bob? When's the last time he's been the third option on a team? I know it happened for a second with the Brooklyn Nets, but they could never stay healthy. Does that make you feel better, though? The idea that you're like, well, now we can give James the ball even less. The guy who was angry that he didn't get picked for the All-Star team and basically demanded out after that. Because I know there's a perception that there's this general confidence that like, okay, all these guys are friends. And so James will accept his role. But again, in a summer where there's no real unrestricted free agents of note, except perhaps Pascal Siakam, even in a scenario where this somehow implodes, which crazier things have happened, do you see a situation where James is is guaranteed to get exactly what he wants if he puts forth a turd of a playoff performance? Well, I expect him to play well next to Kawhi and Paul George and Russell Westbrook. But if he does, look, he knows he's backed into a corner now. He needs the Clippers. This is really his last chance to prove that he can be reliable, that he can be called upon in multiple ways, including in the playoffs. And I I think as bad as he's been at times, people forget about all the great performances and forget about a Houston team that took maybe the greatest team ever to seven games without CP3 the last two, and it was because of James Harden. I mean, last year was emblematic of that just in that second-round series against Boston. You saw the good James Harden, the 40-point game one, and then you saw the bad James Harden in that game seven. But to act like it's there's you know ups and downs and it's just downs with him in the playoffs, like a lot of people have been saying, it's just negative stuff with him, that's just not true. That's not the entire picture. He's had spectacular performances for all the people that are down on this move, like Colin Cowherd and others saying, oh, Coach Lou, it's going to be a headache for him. Coach Lou wants James Harden. Coach Lou wanted Russell Westbrook. The same people who are saying it's not going to work with Russ, he can't change, are now, not realizing it has worked, saying the same thing about James Harden. They're going to be wrong again, I think. I think the Clippers have a better culture than people realize when it comes to being kind of, I've called it a rejuvenation station. For players, I think they're going to get something out of PJ Tucker as well. Everyone said Nicholas Batum was done after Charlotte bought him out, and he had a couple of great seasons with the Clippers. Same thing with Reggie Jackson. Same thing with Russ. I think James Harden's going to be the next guy to be rejuvenated with this franchise. And on that note, Adam, I like that. I want to go out on a positive note. I think there's a lot of positivity. I would ask you to make one bold, definitive statement since this is a Cavaliers podcast. Who goes deeper in the playoffs? My Cavaliers. Or your LA Clippers? I don't know. Are the Cavs going to have to play the Knicks in the first round again? Because that's a one and done right there. That's a five game. You son of a, you son of a bitch. You're a guest in my house. You just walked into the living room and took a shit right in front of the television. I actually prepared for this podcast by eating that Taco Bell late last night, Bob. It was all a setup, man. I knew I was coming on with you and I was going to drop it. Well, when I put this on social media, I'm going to lead with Adam Oslin condemns Chris Broussard publicly rebukes him. That's what I'm, that's going to be the title. I'm going to, and then I'm going to, I'm going to tag him and I'm going to tag Rob Parker and anybody I can think of along the way. And Steve Ballmer. My Twitter account and disassociate <laughs> myself with you in every way possible. Yeah, I'll yeah. never have to go on those morning meetings again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Well, well, again, Adam Oslin, pre-post game host of the Clippers at follow Adam A. Uh, also 
uh, one of the hosts of the Clips and Dip podcast. So you should uh, check that out. Give that a rating, a review, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you for carving out time today, Adam. I appreciate you, buddy. All right. All the bullshit aside, I love you, Bob. You too, man. And that is going to do it for this episode of the Fear the Fro podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it. I truly do. And I hope that you enjoy my renewed efforts to get reputable people to speak about ongoing news events in the NBA and whatnot. Uh, now, programming note. We're going back to back. First, a parental visit last weekend. This weekend, my wedding anniversary. So, I will not be podcasting after the Pacers game in Indianapolis or after the Warriors game right here in Cleveland. So I hope you understand. But if you don't, my wife would like me to tell you, you can go fuck yourself. You don't own him, okay? I do. So I am Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavs fan, host of this podcast, and I will return before the Thunder game to recap what happened, which I will watch secretly in the bathroom late at night while my wife is asleep in the hotel room, like a crack addict. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.